part always makes me laugh. I don't know why. So we're uh, we're kicking off. It's all this serious video. Then it's uh, all right. We're kicking off a brand new series today called Graceland. Uh, and, and as the the bumper there was talking a little bit about, like honestly, like if we're honest, it's not hard to see when we look around the world today um, that that the world is profoundly broken. And and maybe the biggest problem of all. And this gets so little attention, especially kind of on a national scale or on a bigger scale or a public in the public discourse, is that the world around us is merely a reflection of the world of the world within us. The world is broken because, well, because we're broken. And so how can we ever hope to create a better world and bring hope and light to those around us? And honestly, that's what this conversation the next few weeks is going to be about. Uh, this conversation called Graceland. And, and I hope that you'll join us. Uh, this, we're going to be in this conversation all the way leading up to Mother's Day, which is only five weeks from today. So you have been warned if you are not a mom or you have a mom or you're married to a mom, uh, like it's coming up. And on that day, we're actually kicking off on Mother's Day uh, a series called You're Not Listening, which I felt was like very appropriately uh, entitled. And so I can't wait. And so, by the way, you know, you and your family, you guys are the most important thing to us around here. Like, people are the most important thing to us. And so we're here to support you and serve you and help you. And, and, and so I just want you to know, like, I, my family and I, we're, we're here, we're available to you. And so, in fact, um, I just thought, I, you know, I, if anybody wants my cell, cell, I don't know who would want my cell number, uh, but if you need to, somebody to talk to, somebody to pray with, you just want to get some coffee or something to eat, please don't, tag, you know, please don't hesitate to text me uh, or call me. I would love to be able to help you in any way that I can. And so, um, I know I don't uh, look a day over 27, uh, but I turned, I turned 46 uh, last month, and uh, in my vast life experience, I have come to believe that everybody seems normal until you get to know them, right? Anybody with me on that? And then it's like, oh, this person's really normal, and then you hang out with them, you're like, not so much, uh, they're kind of weird. And, and so the closer you get to people, you see all the little hangups and their little idiosyncrasies that they might have. And the more you think like, I might be the only normal person I know. Anybody ever had that thought? Like I'm the only normal one. But the truth is like we all have our share of problems. We all have our share of hangups. We all have our little messes that we create. And so one of my, one of my biggest problems is that I lose important stuff. And uh, it used to happen all the time, uh, whether it was my phone or my wallet or keys or tax papers or my wallet or wedding ring or glasses or my wallet or AirPods or shoes or a boarding pass. Did I mention my wallet? I've lost that so many times. Like you name it, I have lost it. And, and losing something and never finding it is the worst, especially when it's your wallet and you got to go through and cancel stuff and you got to get a driver's license. But one of the most annoying things that happens for me is when I lose it, but then I find it like eight hours later or a day later or a week later, right in the spot that I put it in so that I wouldn't lose it. And I find it right after I canceled everything and started the process of redoing everything. And maybe the most annoying part of all of my losing patterns is that my wife has the gift of finding, which is honestly like a lifesaver in a lot of ways, 
Uh, but do you, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. It's really annoying for me to do all the searching and to search and to search for my thing in my areas and not be able to find what I'm looking for. But then she goes in in like two minutes and kind of triumphantly walks out with it in her hands. And, and then there are those moments when it's not lost or even misplaced. It's sitting out in the open. I just didn't see it. So I thought it was lost. I looked right at it, yet somehow I looked past it and didn't see it at all. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You're looking for something. It's sitting right in front of you. You're looking right at it, but you can't see it. And, and the truth is, like, this happens to all of us at different times, right? Sometimes we don't see what's there. We see what we think should be there. And so, so we miss it. H have you experienced that where, where you didn't see something that was right in front of you? And sometimes it's annoying or inconvenient, like when you can't find your wallet or keys, but other times it, it can be more serious. Like, like have you ever been driving or seen someone driving or been riding with someone who's driving and all of a sudden, like out of the blue, like a crazy person, they pull out or turn out right in front of an oncoming car. And then afterwards they're like, well, I, they came out of nowhere, I didn't even see them. And it was like, it was right in front of you. How did you miss that car that was right there? So how does that happen? Well, actually, science actually tells us how it happens. At the base of our brain is a cluster of nerve cells called the reticular activating system. And the reticular, the RAS is like your brain's radar. And it's super important to how you as a human being function because we're constantly being bombarded with all kinds of stimuli, sights and sounds and tastes and feelings. And if you had to process or pay attention to all of them, you'd literally go insane. Anybody remember on... Um, Man of Steel, when he's like getting his powers and then you know, he's like processing all the sides and he can super hear everything and it's just like driving him crazy because he can't shut it off, right? Like that, that's, what your, that's what your RAS does for you. That's what we'd be like if you didn't have this little cluster of cells, like this little cluster of brain cells that are doing that for you. It, it acts as a gatekeeper. Your RAS is how your brain decides what gets noticed and what goes unnoticed, it, reads, it weeds through all the stimuli that you receive every day and it determines what's important and what isn't. But it's not perfect and it can definitely make mistakes, which is why you can be staring directly at the thing that you've been looking for and not see it. Or how you can be driving and miss that giant oncoming truck that's right in front of you. Now, here's, here's what's interesting. Your RAS, it doesn't function in a vacuum, right? It's influenced by your choices and your beliefs and your feelings and your moods, by what you give your attention to and what you don't, by how you respond to different people and different circumstances. It's influenced by the picture of where you see your life going, by what you pray about, by the story that's playing out in your head about you and about them and about the world and God and about what happened between you and that other person. And so at any given moment, we could actually miss the thing that we need the most because we just can't see it. And we don't see it because in some strange sense, we're looking for it, but we're also not looking for it. Now, and that says nothing of the things that are actually the most important things in life or the stuff, the stuff that we're missing that we didn't even know we should be looking for in the first place. Now, all of this stuff has huge implications, right? Because the, there's a huge problem. Because as it turns out, God has a history of hiding what we need most, the most important parts of truth and life and reality in plain sight. 
And he's not playing games with us where he's trying to keep us from seeing them. Just the opposite. In fact, there's this, there's this scripture in the book of Acts in, in Acts chapter 17 and, 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 and there's this conversation that's going on and this guy named Paul, he's standing up and he's giving, he's basically preaching a sermon in a place that wasn't a church. He was invited to go and meet with all these Greek philosophers and all these people and he's talking about God and about Jesus and he says this very thing. He says that God actually decides the parameters and the particulars of our lives ahead of time and the reason he does that is so that as we're sort of groping around in the dark trying to find truth and life and what's real that we would have the best opportunity to actually find him so he's not trying to hide from us it's just the opposite but so often we can't see what's right in front of us in fact this is a lot of what the easter story is all about jesus was crucified and killed on friday and all of his followers are shocked and horrified and devastated and then came saturday and we don't talk a lot about Saturday in the church, right? The Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday is when Jesus died, and, and we reflect on that, and we think about that. And then, you know, obviously on Easter, we're, you know, celebrating the resurrection. But, but that Saturday for the disciples, it was all so final. It's over. He's dead and buried. Nothing is going to change that. But can, can I tell you something this morning? That with God, when it looks over He's just getting started. When, when nothing's happening, something is happening. See, nothing happened on Saturday, but something was happening that was coming on Sunday. And so early on Sunday morning, a lady named Mary Magdalene, she heads over to the tomb to recover Jesus's body. Why? Because they expected him to still be dead. That's the thing about dead people. They're really reliable. They stay where you put them. They don't move. And by the way, if you're a little skeptical about all this resurrection stuff, you're in really good company. See, all the disciples, all the followers of Jesus in the New Testament, they, were all, they, they all missed it. They had no idea. They did not believe. They were super skeptical. And so Mary discovers that Jesus isn't there, and she runs back and tells the disciples, and they don't believe her. And so then they have a foot race down to the tomb to see for themselves. And and see, I think sometimes if, for those of us that are followers of Jesus or we believe and like we go to church and we've been around this stuff so much, like we act as if there was this giant rally on Easter morning with the disciples around the tomb worshiping and they were all just counting down as the sun was rising, waiting for Jesus to walk out victoriously like 10, 9, here he comes guys, 8, 7, cue the sunrise, 6, 5, 4, roll away the stone, 3, 2, 1, they're playing like, you know, just rocky music and Jesus comes walk, running out. Like we act as if like that was what was happening, but no, 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 like they didn't expect him to be alive. They weren't there. Not only were they not there when they discovered his body wasn't there, they didn't think, oh, that's right, you guys. That's today. We forgot. Like we totally, we missed it. He's not there because he's alive, of course. No, no, no. When, they, when, they, when his body wasn't there, they weren't, they weren't thinking that. John, who was actually there, he said that none of them actually understood what was happening. None of them expected to find Jesus alive. And so Mary finds the empty tomb and she tells the disciples and they check it out for themselves and then, and then they go back to wherever, wherever they were staying and then this happens in John chapter 20, beginning with verse 11. It says, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying and she's not crying because she's happy. These are not happy tears. She's crying because Jesus is dead and now his body's missing. 
As she wept, she bent over to look in the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. So wait, wait, wait. Jesus is dead. Now he's alive. She went there to see him. She sees him, but she didn't recognize him. Why? She had known him at least a couple of years. She had been one of his closest and most devoted followers. She wasn't just another face in the crowd. They were close. And now she doesn't recognize him standing face to face. Some people have said that it, they think it's because she was crying so hard, she couldn't see him through, the, through her tears. And, and maybe that's what happened. But, but this isn't the only time that this thing happened, and she isn't the only one it happened to. In Luke chapter 24, verse 13, it says, On that same day, two, Jesus, two of Jesus' followers were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking to each other about all the things that had happened. And what, are, what were all the things that had happened? Jesus had been arrested and falsely accused and crucified and killed and buried. Those, those are the things they're talking about. And as they talked and discussed, Jesus himself drew near and walked along with them. And they saw him, but somehow did not recognize him. In John chapter 21, it says this in verse one, after Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, in verse four, it says early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus. And then you have this guy named Thomas that we've all, Thomas is famous for doubting. In John chapter 20, verse 24, it says this, it says, now Thomas, he's also known as Didymus. I think his friends called him T. Diddy. Um, (laughs) Thomas One of the 12 was not one of the disciples when Jesus came in. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, put my hand in his side, I will not believe. So what's happening here? See, here's what I think is happening is when something or someone you love dies, your vision gets damaged. How you see the world begins to change. See, sometimes we miss something because we're not looking. But sometimes we miss it simply because we're missing it. Sometimes we don't actually know what we're missing when it's passing us by. And I think there's a, a, for a lot of us, that's kind of our Easter experience. Like we, we can tend to miss what's right in front of us because we just don't get it or because of doubt or because we're preoccupied with life or with other stuff. But, but then there are other times that I think we're actually looking, but we can't see it because of our past and the stuff that we've been through and the way that those experiences have changed how we see the future and how we see what's possible. Has that ever happened to you? Like, I think that happens to all of us, right? We loved and we trusted, but then we were betrayed and hurt. And now we have a hard time trusting anyone. We had all these plans and dreams, but then we failed miserably and it all kind of came crashing down. So we just kind of shelved all that, pushed it off to the side and just sort of settled for this safe thing that is the sure thing that we have. Or or maybe you tried church and God, but somebody who claimed to speak for God judged you or hurt you. And so you just kind of washed your hands of it and walked away from all of it. I've actually found in my life that hurt Christians make the best atheists. 
By the way, it's not always negative or hurtful stuff that keeps us stuck, that keeps us from seeing things. Sometimes it's, it, it's not that what happened back there was so bad that we think we'll never recover. Sometimes it's that it was so good, we start believing that nothing up ahead could possibly ever live up to it. Like that was the best time of my life and it's just gonna all be downhill from here. Or, or we were perfect for each other, but now that she's gone, I'm not sure how I'm gonna move forward or love again. That church or that small group or that faith community was so amazing. I'll never find that thing again. In 2007, uh, my wife and I moved from the San Francisco Bay Area to the Sacramento area back uh, where we were from to launch a church. And so we planted, launched our first church in 2007 and we were there for 10 years and it was an amazing experience and um, it, it grew and was awesome and it took off. And we, I, I just, I loved every second of that experience. And then when we moved away, I, I, I realized recently that the last four or five years has been me just kind of looking backwards in the mirror, you know, in the rearview mirror going, man, that was awesome. I don't know if I'll ever, I don't know if we'll ever experience that again. Maybe that was the peak of church life and pastor life for me. I don't know if that's ever, see, I think sometimes we get stuck looking backwards, not because it's so bad, but because that thing back there was so good. See, if you're a follower of Jesus, we're sometimes blinded what God is doing right now by our attachment to what he's already done. They were all looking for Jesus, but nobody saw him because they didn't expect to see him alive. They had mental and spiritual blind spots because of what they believed and what they expected to see. So even when he was standing right in front of them, they couldn't see him. They missed him. I wonder how many times we've missed the good right here because we've convinced ourselves it could never compare to the good back there. Jesus was standing right in front of Mary, but she didn't see him. I wonder if that's ever happened to you or to me. See, God actually declares in the scriptures that he's closer to us than the air that we breathe. But how often do we miss him? Are we even aware that he's with us? Jesus stands right in front of us offering his love and his grace, but so many times we can't, we can't see it. So John actually tells us that after Mary sees them that Jesus spoke to her. But even then she didn't recognize him. In verse, verse 15, Jesus then says, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? See, if this was me, if I was Jesus, I'd have been like, surprise, Mary, Woo! I'm back, baby. <laughs> like I would not have been like, so why are you crying? You know, no, 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 no. This is not about you. This is about me. I just came back from the dead. But Jesus obviously doesn't do that. Instead, he asks her a couple of really pointed questions, which is just such a Jesus thing to do. And by the way, when God asks you a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. It's so that you know that you're loved no matter what the truth is about you. It's so that you can hear what your answer is. He already knows what the answer is. It's an invitation to stop pretending, to stop hiding, and just be honest with yourself. And so Jesus asked her two questions, and both of them seemed to have pretty obvious answers. He says, why are you crying? Well, because Jesus is dead. I don't know if you're aware of that. 
Why, who are you looking for? I'm looking for Jesus and his dead body. Those are pretty straightforward answers. But I think Jesus was actually getting, getting at something a little deeper. I, I think he was going like, I, I know you're hurting. I know you're grieving. But where are you truly broken? What's really going on in you Mary, I know you're trying to find the body of this person you loved, but what is it that you're really searching for? What's really driving you? What are you convinced that you need to do to drown out the noise in your soul? What are you convinced that you need to do or make or achieve or accomplish or eat or smoke or date or buy to fill the emptiness in your life? I think it's pretty interesting that this is the second time that Mary was asked at least one of these questions because the angels asked her the same question. Don't you hate it when somebody keeps asking you the same question over and over and over again? That's called being a parent. You're just like, shut up. <laughs> and that's where we'll see comes in real handy. And my kids hate that. That means no. They, they walk away and they say that to each other. We'll see. That means no. Okay, well, then why'd you ask? Because that's my answer. <clears throat> but it's almost as if God is telling us that these two questions, that, that you're not going to be able to avoid them. And so I wonder this morning, like if you, in a moment of just honesty, in a moment of reflection, I, I just wonder like, why are you crying? Who, who are you looking for? What's the thing that if you lost it or you were kept from it, you'd completely fall apart because you don't know who you are without it? And so even after Jesus spoke to her, Mary didn't recognize him. Verse 15 and 16, it says this, thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will, I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And then she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. So Mary's standing there wrestling with the answers to the questions he just asked her answering, you know, wrestling with what she believes and what she's feeling. And all the while, what she's really looking for is right in front of her. It just didn't look like how she thought it was going to look. And isn't that the way that it is with us too? Have you ever been disappointed by something really good just because it wasn't what you were expecting? Like, like the thing that happened, you're just like, ah, and everybody else is like, yeah, that's awesome. And you're just like, I mean, it's all right. See, because when reality doesn't match our plan, even a good thing can feel like a bad thing. But here's the problem. When we expect the new thing that God wants to do to look like the old thing, then we're gonna miss out on the thing that Jesus has for you and for me. Because God always has a reputation for meeting our needs in ways that we were not expecting. So often we want God to simply revive what was, to bring back something that used to be. But God is actually in the business of resurrection. And that is so much better. See, because revival is about bringing back the old, but resurrection is when God takes the old and makes something new out of it. There's one last thing Jesus says to Mary in verse 17. After she cries out, she turns around, sees that it's him. He says, don't cling to me, for I haven't yet ascended to my father. I think part of what he's saying is this. Mary, don't get hung up on the way things were or the way, things, or the way you thought they were always going to be. 
Don't, don't cling to some picture, some reality, some thought of how you think it's going to go because everything has changed. You needed that then, but that was then and this is now. And what I've done and what I'm doing is something brand new. I think that's what he was saying to her. See, for all of us, like in order for us to grab a hold of what could be, you actually have to let go of what once was and even what is. We're all clinging to something. We all build our lives on something. And so what is it that you're clinging to? And what if what you're clinging to is keeping you from seeing and experiencing what God has for you and what he's offering you? What if the thing that you're holding so tightly is keeping you from grabbing a hold of the thing that you need most? What is it that if you slowed down and listened long enough, you might actually sense God saying, that may have served you for a season, that may have served you in that period of time in your life, but it's time to let it go because your salvation lies somewhere completely different. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, the apostle Paul, who I mentioned a second ago, he wrote these words. He says, that means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. See, God isn't trying to help you get back to the person you used to be. He's trying to create something brand new in you. And the resurrection isn't just about Jesus coming back to life. It's about God's ability to bring anything back to life, including whatever's dead or damaged or broken in your life. So after Jesus talked with Mary, John tells us a few verses later how that first Easter Sunday ended. He said that all the disciples were meeting together. They were all gathered together and they were hiding behind locked doors because they were afraid that the same people who killed and crucified Jesus were going to be coming for them next. And John says, while we were meeting behind closed doors, locked, Jesus walks through the walls and stands in the room with us and says that they all see him and they all talk to him and they all touch him. And this is maybe one of my favorite parts of the resurrection story because I personally have a way of building up walls between me and God, of putting distance and creating space and building up barriers between me and grace, between me and love, between me and Jesus. And the beautiful reality this morning is that whatever walls exist between you and God, that God is here and he's moving into your space and he can just walk right through that wall into your heart, into your life, into your soul and meet you right where you are. The question is, can you see it or are you going to miss it? John finally says that after Jesus talks with them before he leaves, he says something kind of interesting, kind of weird. He says that Jesus breathes on them. And that definitely seems kind of really weird at first, but the imagery, imagery is unmistakable because Breath is life, and only God can give it. In fact, in the opening scene of creation, the beginning of Genesis, it's one of the first things that we're told God does. After he forms the first human out of the dust, he breathes on him, and he comes to life. And in this moment, Jesus breathes on his disciples, on his friends, on those who love him, and those who thought their lives were over, and he gives them a second life, a life that was certainly gonna be completely different than they thought but better than they could have ever imagined. And I believe that with all my being, 
that God actually wants to do the same for you this morning, that he just wants to breathe life into your soul. He, he wants to draw near to you and you allow him to invade the space of your internal life and begin to bring love and grace and healing and life and truth by breathing into you. Let's pray together.